Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. It is Friday night, and so it is time for us to talk about science. Um, As always, you can find me throughout the week at the Facebook page, which is evidencebasedradio.com. I'm sorry, Evidence-Based Radio at Facebook. Um, And then you can listen to this and previous episodes on your favorite podcast app, iTunes, Stitcher, Podcasts podcatcher, whatever you like. And you can find the uh, podcasts at evidencebasedradio.com. Okay, so first off, uh, an announcement. I want to let you know that next Monday will be uh, another meeting of the SciTech Cafe. So I've been a little remiss about uh, reminding you about SciTech Cafe and uh, Science Cafe meetings. So I'm going to try and get back onto that for the uh, spring semester since they are semester based. Uh, So I will definitely be working on that. So this month, the topic will be the development of stretchy sensors for wearable devices. And that is going to be with Professor uh, Kristen Dorsey. And so the event is free and open to the public. And um, I always learn amazing things when I go to their lectures. Uh, It's at 6 p.m. at Union Station in Northampton. Uh, So if you can, uh, you should definitely head over there on Monday, listen to some great science, uh, nibble on some free food. They do end up having uh, free appetizers. And uh, the last time I went, they were very good. (laughs) And uh, you may even win a fun little uh, door prize. So um, yeah, it is a good time. So again, if you have the ability to go on Monday, uh, 6 p.m. Union Station in uh, Northampton. Okay, so let's have a bit of a talk first about influenza. I know I sound kind of like a broken record about this, but it's really important, especially this year, to understand just how deadly the flu can be. For instance, in California, hospitals are actually having to set up triage tents in their parking lots to deal with all of the flu cases that they are encountering. And even worse, a new study suggests that it is even easier to spread the flu than once thought. Most people believe that you need to be exposed to someone's coughs or sneeze in order to be infected. But the researchers suggest that simply breathing around an infected person can be enough to spread the virus. We found that flu cases contaminated the air around them with infectious virus just by breathing, without coughing or sneezing, said senior author Professor Donald Milton from the University of Maryland School of Public Health. Now, he noted that this is especially true during the first few days of the illness. We found that flu cases contaminated the air around them with infectious virus just by breathing um, and without coughing or sneezing. Um, Sorry, when we consider that an infectious dose is just one virus particle, this means that potentially a thousand people can be affected in short order. And um, so, yeah, this is especially important in buildings where people sit near each other and especially on public transportation, where the density of people is very high and the air is usually not fresh. 
Uh, and so, yeah, having uh, at one time been a regular user of the PVTA bus system, uh, I can assure you that I have had concerns about this in the past, um, about people coughing around me and being generally unwell in a bus where the windows don't open um, and there is air circulating. Um, it's also why people tend to get sick on planes because it's a closed system. Um, so if you have someone traveling near you, uh, with you who is sick and you're on a plane, you're much more likely to, uh, get that infection if they are still, uh, in the infectious stage. So yeah, it's very important to try and, uh, avoid this. And so for the study, the researchers analyzed exhaled breath samples from 142 confirmed cases of people with influenza. They took samples as they breathed normally, during prompted speech, spontaneous coughing, and sneezing. They then measured the infectivity of the naturally occurring aerosols. And so aerosols are basically tiny droplets that stay in the air for long periods of time and are generally um, what causes people to become infected. So, um, for instance, in the highly, highly contagious neurovirus, uh, it's those aerosols that are doing a lot of the infecting. Um, and so uh, the participants provided also provided 218 nasal swabs and 218 uh, 30-minute samples of breathing, coughing, and sneezing on the first, second, and third days after the onset of symptoms. And so what they found was, again, surprising and disturbing. Uh, after analyzing the viruses from the samples, they found that not only were subjects shedding detectable RNA, from the viruses, they were shedding infectious viruses themselves in small enough aerosols as to present an infectious risk. And again, the most disturbing part is that 11 of the 23 or 48% of aerosol samples taken from natural breathing contained not only detectable RNA from the virus, but eight of the 11 contained whole viruses, suggesting that coughing was not necessary to transmit the disease to other people. Now, a slightly interesting result was that they found that sneezing did not significantly increase the uh, viral load. And so they actually found that sneezing is not a terribly uh, important vector for virus shedding in aerosols, um, which was definitely a surprising result because, uh, you know, sneezing is the thing that people most try and avoid, I think, uh, because it just involves so much aerosol to begin with. Um, but it's probably something to do with um, the natural defenses that you have in your nasal passages uh, for catching uh basically viruses and bacteria and stuff like that. Uh, that's why you have nose hair and such. <laughs> um, and so, yeah. CDC recommendations include hand washing to protect against con contact transmission, but the airborne mode of infection has not been considered as important, Dr. Patelik said. Our study changes this perception and shows that the airborne mode is very important. We need to consider it and design a guideline for it. So basically, the takeaway from this is that if you think you have the flu 
and you can stay home. Stay away from other people as much as possible for the first few days. And I know this isn't an option for everyone. Obviously, some people don't have paid sick time, have to go to work. Um, But if you have to go out, consider wearing a surgical mask if you can, uh, again, um, to help lessen the chance of spreading the virus to others. Um, Because, again, it's not just a cold. Influenza sickens hundreds of thousands of people every year in the U.S. and kills like 10,000 or more. It's very serious. It is not a cold. It is a very serious disease um, that can have real consequences for people, um, especially those with uh, compromised immune systems and, of course, children and the elderly, um, as most diseases uh, strike the worst. Okay. And, of course, just as my broken record, uh, if you haven't gotten your flu shot yet, What are you waiting for? Um, Sure, it's not terribly effective, but not terribly effective is better than not having gotten it at all. And as has been proven year after year, if you get the flu shot and you get the flu, you will still usually get a milder form of the flu than someone who was not vaccinated at all. So definitely, it's not too late. It is absolutely not too late. Uh, the CDC is very much suggesting that people still try and seek it out if they have not gotten it. Um, it is very, very helpful, um, despite not being terribly efficacious in the general scheme of things. Um, and I've talked about uh, efficacy before, um, you know, and if you look at it from a statistical model sense, we're talking it's still, even if it's only 5 or 10% effective, that's still hundreds of thousands of people who won't get sick. And so, yeah, um, you have to look at it at a population level. Okay, so uh, while we're talking about being sick uh, on the sort of same front, let's talk a little bit about uh, that sneezing story that you may or may not have heard about. Uh, So if you haven't, let me tell you about it. (laughs) So a recently published case report in the British Medical Journal suggests that you should not try and hold in your sneezes. Of course, I immediately felt bad about this because I'm notorious for trying to uh, stifle my sneezes. Um, But this suggests that you should not do that and especially don't do it by plugging up your nose and mouth. Uh, So it turns out that this happened to a 34-year-old UK man uh, and it ended up landing him in the uh, emergency services. And so basically he tried to stifle a sneeze by sealing off his mouth and nose. And then he felt a popping, painful sensation in his throat. Uh, Arriving at emergency services, he was unable to talk and was barely able to swallow. Now, doctors could hear a crackling sound from his neck all the way down to his rib cage. And so what it turns out to have been is that the man had punctured his pharynx, uh, which is the section of throat just behind the mouth and nose, which connects them to the esophagus and larynx. And so the noise came from a conti- from a condition known as crepitus, uh, wherein air bubbles seep into the area and actually were rubbing against the soft tissue of his neck and the area around his lungs, which is why it went down into his ribcage. 
Um, I've had crepitus once when I had soft tissue damage. It's really awful and you never want to have it. Trust me. Um, it basically, you end up having a spot in your skin that if you touch it, it sounds like Rice Krispies. Not a good time. Um, trust me, don't do it. Uh, and so because the uh, injury could actually lead to a serious infection, given where it was in the body, he was admitted to hospital, put on a feeding tube and given prophylactic antibiotics. Now, luckily, the man was able to fully recover. Uh, they were able after about a week to remove the feeding tube. And in a uh, follow up a couple of weeks later, he seemed to have been uh, completely recovered and had no ill effects. Um, so he was definitely lucky. Uh, and of course, I will editorially note that he was even luckier uh, because he was in the UK, so the hospital bill won't bankrupt him um, if he isn't lucky enough to have a good paying job and good insurance the way it would here. Okay, so let's move on now and talk about chocolate. Now, this isn't necessarily a new story, um, but it's one that I haven't talked about in a while. And it is actually something that serves a good uh, object lesson for some of the not so great parts of science, which I do like to occasionally point out uh, in the interest of full disclosure and to, you know, make sure that it's very clear that, you know, not every science story is great and not every science report is good um, in many different ways. Um, and so uh, we're not going to talk about the supposed apocalypse uh, that chocolate is going extinct. We did that uh, recently uh, and found that it's mostly uh, misunderstandings combined with the uh, ever-present need for uh, clickbait articles. Uh, so yeah, but let's actually talk about some potentially shady uh, science involved, especially in the idea that has become really prevalent in the last few years, that suddenly dark chocolate is considered a superfood. Now, I try every so, every so often to talk about bad science, as I mentioned, uh, and this is really to remind everyone that we have to carefully examine all of our assumptions. And that even though I believe strongly in the power of science to tell us about the world and to make our lives better, it is often tainted, uh, especially by human fallibility and, well, let's be perfectly honest, capitalism. Um, and so as with that produced by large pharmaceutical and agribusiness companies, not all scientific research can be considered untainted by bias and data manipulation. Now, of course, I'm going to say that this is not this is one of the reasons our increasingly stingy budget for public science is so worrisome, um, but it's not really completely uh confined to uh, industry-based science. Uh, obviously, without robust funding from the government, scientists must increasingly turn to the private sector for funding, and that can often come with strings attached. But again, human fallibility also uh, plays into this, and um, the way that our system is set up in science, uh, which I think has a tendency to push this sort of thing in general. Um, and so I would say that there's probably room for a lot of reform in the scientific community, but 
at its bedrock, science is still absolutely 100% the best way to find out about our world and to move into the future with better tools for living and working and doing everything that we have to do. Um, I am still very much a science booster, as you might imagine. Okay, so let's talk about dark chocolate. Recently, uh, and chocolate in general, in fact, because it ends up being conflated into just chocolate in general, including the uh, typical Hershey's <laughs> kind of chocolate when some people uh, decide that, oh, well, if some of it's good, it must all be good. So recently, uh, Julia Belouz at Vox, uh, who is an amazing reporter who you should definitely follow, uh, did a piece on how dark chocolate went from candy to superfood. And what she and the team at Vox found was rather unsurprising. 30 years of studies funded by food companies like Nestle's, Mars, and Hershey's, etc. Um, in the science or cocoa and chocolate um, into the science uh, noted that the stories on cocoa and chocolate had led to an almost complete lack of critical studies. And so Vox studied 100 Mars-funded health reports and found that 98% of them, or 98, since it was 100, uh, produced positive results that promoted a range of supposed benefits to eating chocolate, including supposed heart health benefits and cocoa's ability to fight disease. Now, of course, these studies are then heavily promoted to news media in order to move the message from the lab to the kitchen table. And so they talk about one really interesting uh, example. So this was a small, highly suspect study uh, led by researchers from Columbia Universe University. And it was initially roundly challenged by neuroscientists who took aim at everything from how the study itself was designed to the statistical analysis used to how it was reported in the original journal, which was Nature Neuroscience. And of course, then there was the hype. The study suggested that cocoa supplements, especially the newly in vogue flavanols, uh, which is also used in a bunch of other supposed superfoods to uh, prove that they are superfoods, uh, that it could boost cognition in older adults, which is, of course, the sort of holy grail of all of this kind of, uh, a lot of this nutrition science is uh, basically, if you want to be successful in uh, nutrition science, you want to uh, prove somehow that either your product makes people lose weight or makes them uh, have better cognitive function as they grow old. Those are kind of the big two. Um, everything else is kind of down the list. Um, so this was one of the big two, was that it uh, boosted cognition in older adults. Now, despite the obvious flaws in the study, and it was a very small study, which as we have talked about on many an occasion on this show, uh, the smaller the study, the more significant the results are likely to be in the sense of compared to the uh, study itself, but the less statistically significant and um, actually impactful the study is to the greater population. Um, 
because the less people you have, the more likely you are, you are to find some sort of weird and crazy result, but you're also almost certainly not going to be able to apply that to a wider audience. It's just the way it is. Um, and so it became a huge story with outlets like the New York Times declaring that chocolate could help fight Alzheimer's. Now, of course, this is despite the fact that the paper talked about cocoa supplements, not chocolate in the sense of a chocolate bar that you can just pick up at the local grocery store. And this study had even more basic issues. Now, this is a really interesting um, sort of way to look at exactly how these studies are supposed to be done. So we can use this as kind of a, a case study. So researchers are supposed to register clinical trials on a public database like clinicaltrials.gov. Uh, and so when registering, they're supposed to declare which health come outcomes they are looking at. And so they then group outcomes into primary and secondary importance and describe how they plan to measure these outcomes. Now, if they plan to if they end up changing what they are doing, they're supposed to be clear and transparent about it in the final paper. Now, this is meant to prevent several things. For instance, for researchers to simply change midstream, um, especially to get better results. So basically, you can't start a, start a program, uh, try to be looking for something, find that it's not there, and then just say, oh, well, halfway through, and then change in order to find something else in the same study. You shouldn't be doing that. Um, and so that is a big thing. Um, and it's also supposed to help with what is referred to as quote unquote outcome switching, in which researchers highlight good results while ignoring or even hiding important results that don't pan out uh, in the way that they were expecting. And also, it's meant to help ensure that the research is real and has not been tweaked to get a better conclusion. As you can imagine, the COCO supplement trial broke basically all of these rules. Uh, they changed the clinical trial registry itself several times, um, which luckily... Uh, clinicaltrials.gov has a handy dandy tool that lets you track the uh, revisions. And so Vox was able to see that it had been revised and revised and revised all throughout the process, um, which you shouldn't be doing. Um, they also failed to clearly pre-specify um, what they were going to do before beginning the trial. And they didn't report any of this in the final study that was published. If you don't pre-specify your method of measurement of an outcome, in this case, neurocognitive function, you are free to choose consciously or unconsciously from a range of possible outcomes, notes Henry Drysdale, a doctor and a fellow at Oxford University's Center for Evidence-Based Medicine. You can then pick the outcome that makes your chocolate look good and not to say authors will always do this with vaguely pre-specified -pre outcomes, but the option is there. And so when asked about this odd behavior, the researchers said that they were actually new to registering clinical trials. However, they even changed the information in the trials registry three months 
after they published their Nature Neuroscience article. So, yeah, that's pretty much a case study in what not to do <laughs> when you're doing a trial like this. Um, and then, of course, something like this then gets promoted to the media. And it's like, no, that's not even if they're information was sound the way they did it was so terrible that it should not be promoted in any way um and again to be clear they're not the only researchers who have ever tweaked their findings uh this is actually a pro problem in both again industry funded and academic research but it does show how easily results can be manipulated and especially how easily a small result can be turned into a huge media sensation now, Mars told Vox that, quote, we are always clear that chocolate is a treat, not a snack, food, or meal replacement, and market our products accordingly. They added, we do not translate or communicate the outcomes of our cocoa flavanol research program in the context of chocolate. Now, that might be strictly true. Absolutely. Uh, for instance, the uh, people who promoted that uh, study were mostly the Cornell, uh, basically public relations side, uh, touted this um, very much. But it's hard to argue that uh, they don't do these things in order to uh, cultivate more interest from industry in their programs. Um, and so, yeah, it's hard to see, uh, hard not to see this sort of research as being awfully convenient to an industry where health consciousness, uh, can easily have a hit on the bottom line. And so in fact, uh, despite overall candy sales being down, Somehow, miraculously, U.S. retail sales of chocolate have climbed from $14.2 billion in 2007 to $18.9 billion in 2017. Now, I want to again stress as well that this isn't a problem with science with a big S, uh, so much as it is a problem with the way in which we value positive results in science and devalue negative results. Nobody wants to be the one who publishes negative results unless they're spectacular negative results that everybody wanted to know about. But if you do a, if you do a study and you just find out, well, it didn't work, that's not exciting. And people don't really want to hear about that. But that's really important to know. Um, and I think it's also a problem with a problem of capitalism. I think in some ways, we the way we look at science can almost be seen as uh, through a capitalistic lens. Now, I am not a hardcore Marxist. <laughs> I don't look at everything through uh, the eyes of capitalism uh, being the destroyer. Um, though, obviously, uh, in case you hadn't uh, noticed, if you are new to the show, I am a socialist, full disclosure. Um, but I mean, I think it really sometimes does uh, really need to be said that a lot of times when people are talking about the evils of science, what they mean is the evils of corporations using science, which is not the same thing. That is capitalism being the root of dysfunction in our society, not science. And so, again, a lot of what people dislike about corporate science is because of the fact that it's corporate, not because of the actual science. Okay, 
So let us take a break and do some PSAs, and then we will move on to more fun stuff. Uh, so yeah, uh, hang on for just a moment. Hi, I'm Charlie. I fight fires and I save lives. My name's Renee. I'm a cardiologist. I save lives. My name's Anthony. I'm an EMT. I save lives. You don't have to be a professional to save a life. Firefighters, doctors, and others save lives. You can too. Don't wait. To learn more about the warning signs and how you can help prevent suicide, visit save.org. In a crisis, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. Has anyone ever asked you, don't you have enough records? Adventure Rocket Ship is new and old. Indie pop, psych pop, post-punk, shoegaze, lots of chiming, jangly guitars and catchy melodies from both artists you know and obscure 7-inch singles from around the world. Adventure Rocket Ship, Tuesday nights, 9 to 11 p.m. on Valley Free Radio. Today's episode, Bobcat in the Cave. Oh, nuts! There's a bobcat in this cave! Save us, sassy! You will, but first you like to stress the importance of cat adoption? Over 5 million cats go into animal shelters every year and they need to be adopted? Help us, sassy! Why bother? We'll just get into more trouble tomorrow? Sassy is brought to you by the Ad Council and the shelterpetproject.org. Remember, adopt. Outbreaks of whooping cough, or pertussis, are happening across the United States. This serious respiratory disease can be deadly for babies. By getting the whooping cough vaccine, called Tdap, during the third trimester of each pregnancy, women can pass antibodies to their babies to help protect them until they're old enough to receive their own vaccine. Learn more at cdc.gov slash pertussis slash pregnant. That's pertussis, P-E-R-T-U-S-S-I-S. I never get the flu. My kids don't need more shots. I don't have time. We're all healthy. My asthma's under control. I'm pregnant. I've had the flu. It's not a big deal. My kids are too old for flu. The media is exaggerated. I can fight it naturally. No matter how you build your excuses, the flu can blow your house down. Keep your foundation strong. Vaccinate. Learn more at flu.gov. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. The Lilly Library is filled with adventure and wonder for kids and adults of all ages. Lilly Library in downtown Florence lends books and movies to everyone. They offer free parking, free Wi-Fi, and two-hour sessions on Internet-connected computers. They also offer extensive programs for children, including story hours, clubs, and activities for teens, as well as adult programs. The library is open Tuesday and Thursday evenings, Saturdays and Sundays. Find out more at lilylibrary.org. You are listening to Valley Free Radio, WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM. I'm Mayor David Narkowitz, and I support Northampton's community radio station. It's important to make sure your family has a plan in case of an emergency. We talked to this family to see if each of them knew where to meet if they were not together when something happened. If a natural disaster happened and we were outside the home, we would all meet at the park. That's our meeting point. I meet with our neighbor's house because she is my mom's good friend. We all have a meeting spot, which is a bus stop. Is your plan any better? To learn more about making an emergency plan for your family, go to www.mass.gov MEMA. Brought to you by the Ready Massachusetts U.S. Department of Homeland Security and the Ad Council. 
Okay, we are back. And as promised, we're going to talk about uh, less controversial, more fun things. So, a recent paper in Seismological Research Letters, I know it sounds scintillating, doesn't it, uh, by USGS seismologist Susan Howe, has a one-word abstract. Uh, in case you didn't know, I'm, I bet you do, but just in case, uh, an abstract is the sort of journal word for a summary. Uh, it's often the only thing that you can see if you're not uh, someone who has access to uh, behind paywall journals. Uh, so yeah, um, that's a whole story rant for another day about uh, pay-to-play journals and uh, journals with paywalls, even though most of that science was uh, funded by the government. But anyways, <laughs> um, and so it was a one word summary. And so she was looking into whether or not large global earthquakes occur on preferred days of the calendar year or on lunar cycles. And so her abstract simply states, no. <laughs> Uh, this paper complements another uh, published in 1974, which poses a very similar question from the other side. They looked at, do earthquakes occur randomly in time? Which was answered with the one word abstract, yes. <laughs> now, uh, that was, of course, the point of the ex exercise, in fact, to boil lunar slash tidal triggering down to the question that most people think about, uh, Hogue told Gizmodo in an email. Once it was clear there is no evidence for a significant correlation, the abstract wrote itself, smiley face. <laughs> now, of course, the paper itself has much more nuance and is definitely properly written and properly uh, has plenty of citations. However, it's nice once in a while to be able to publish such an assertive statement in science. Uh, and so she analyzed global earthquakes from the 1600s until today, and basically tried to find if there was any correlation between clusters of earthquakes and certain dates or phases of the moon. She found no patterns. In recent years, there have been a couple of nice studies that show that tidal forces do modulate earthquakes rather rates slightly. It makes sense. The tides create stress in the solid earth and not just the oceans. And in some cases, that small force can be the straw that breaks the camel's back and nudges the fault to produce an earthquake, she noted. However, in the grand scheme of things, they remain frustratingly impossible to predict. The forces involved in an earthquake are so complex that it is seemingly impossible to predict them with any true skill. Um, and so, for instance, they talk a little bit about a experiment that you can do where you sort of uh, have sandpaper and uh, bricks and you have... Uh, rubber bands and if you crank the rubber band they are rubbing against each other so there is inertia there and at some point the fault uh, or the model fault will give but there is no way even in that small system on top of a table that you can actually predict when that system is going to give and if you think about that versus a uh, geological fault um 
it's it's pretty crazy. There is unfortunately no real way to predict how these things are going to happen. Um, at least not yet. We have not developed any kind of mechanism that is able to do that. Uh, and I also really liked that she had some wise words about uh, science communication in general. Scientists nowadays are asking complex questions and often getting complex answers. She wrote, the papers I referenced were careful to say that tidal modulation is subtle and of no practical use for prediction, but I think we need to do a better job of explaining science, focusing squarely on things people care about. So do earthquakes have anything to do with clusters of time or are they uh, tied to lunar cycles? The answer is no. <laughs> it's just, it's no. Um, and so that's very easy for people to understand. And sometimes the easiest, straightforwardest answer, even though, yes, there's some subtle uh, forces and there's some slight uh, difference going on, it's easy and it's correct as well to simply say no. Okay, so now let us move on to some animal stories. So uh, first I want to talk about a small little guy called the common tree shrew. And so this is a small mammal that lives in Thailand, Malaysia, and Indonesia. And the interesting thing about it is that it breaks two uh, usually thought to be evolutionary quote-unquote rules. Uh, so it breaks both the island rule and Bergman's rule. And so a research team led by Yale University professor Eric J. Sargis notes that there are a number of echo-geographical, quote-unquote, rules that describe patterns of geographical variation among organisms. The island rule predicts that populations of larger mammals on islands evolve smaller mean body size and than their mainland counterparts, whereas smaller-bodied mammals evolve larger sizes. Bergman's rule predicts that populations of a species in colder climates, uh, generally at higher latitudes, have larger mean body sizes than conspecifics in warmer climates or at lower latitudes. And so the researchers looked at populations on the Malay Peninsula and from 13 offshore islands. They measured the body size of 260 specimens uh, collected and housed in six natural history museums across Europe and North America um, that were collected during the past 122 years. So they looked at the size of the island, distance from the mainland, maximum sea depth between the mainland and the island, and latitude, all related to body size. And what they found was that there was no difference in size between mainland and island populations, um, the mean at least. It also showed that in direct contrast to Bergman's rule, animals found at lower latitudes tended to be larger than those at higher latitudes. The researchers note that the two rules are rarely studied in conjunction. Determining the causes of geographical variation within a species is critical to understanding underlying mechanisms of evolutionary patterns, Professor Sargis said. 
Our analysis demonstrates the need to assess multiple variables simultaneously when studying ethnogeographical rules in a broadly distributed species like the common tree shrew, as multiple factors may have influenced how populations evolved. And so they found that latitude was the variable that had the greatest impact on body size, while maximum sea depth was next, with populations on islands separated from the mainland by deeper water being generally larger. And finally, they found that tree shrews on small islands tended to be smaller, <laughs> which, you know, is actually generally not the, not the case. Usually on islands, they get bigger. So um, it was definitely interesting to see that they weren't following these strict rules that people just assumed that they did. Okay. So this next story is a little bit of just fun. Um, apparently, this Sunday, the 21st, is Squirrel Appreciation Day. <laughs> so we're going to talk about squirrels. There was a nice little article in um, Smithsonian uh, Magazine about squirrels. And so I know squirrels can be controversial. Uh, personally, I adore them, but I know that they are not the favorite animal of all people, uh, especially not those who want to be able to feed birds uh, in peace without squirrels uh, ruining everything. Uh, so with that understanding, let's actually uh, look at uh, a couple of fun facts about squirrels. Now, the first thing uh, is to suggest that you go and look at pictures of Japanese flying squirrels. And in fact, I've already put a Google image search link on the Facebook page uh, to just a splash page of Google images of Japanese flying squirrels. And they are incredibly adorable. So if you enjoy ridiculously cute animals, definitely go there and uh, click on that link. And for the most colorful squirrels, uh, you should look to the Prevost's squirrel. Uh, and those are found in the lowland and montane forests of the Malay Peninsula, um, and also in Sumatra, Borneo, and other areas um, of the East Indies. Now, their genus name, Caliscorius, literally means beautiful squirrel. So, yeah. Okay. Well, back here in the States, though, we have some pretty excellent uh, squirrels ourselves. They might not be quite as adorable, um, but we definitely have some good species. So, for instance, the California ground squirrel can actually survive a rattlesnake attack. California ground squirrels are well adapted to living around rattlesnakes, said Casey Bell, a Peter Buck postdoctoral fellow at the Smithsonian's Natural Museum of Natural History. National Museum of National of Natural History, uh, they actually have the ability to neutralize snake venom, which is very cool, um, at least as adults. So it turns out that squirrel pups are actually a favorite meal of rattlesnakes. Uh, but that's actually probably uh, part of the reason for uh, the fact that adults have developed this ability to neutralize the venom. And uh, as you can imagine, this is an area of active research, because if the mechanism could be used by humans, uh, that would definitely be a breakthrough for anti-venin. Um, so, yeah. Okay, now this one is legit a fact that I did not know. Um, I was actually surprised when I read this, very much so. So it turns out that... In addition to what we consider, you know, the common gray squirrel uh, or the red squirrel, chipmunks, groundhogs or woodchucks, uh, depending on 
how you uh where you live, uh, marmots and prairie dogs are actually all classified as ground dwelling squirrels. They are all members, along with tree squirrels and flying squirrels, of the family Skyuridae. Crazy. I had no idea. <laughs> um, and so, uh, marmots, as we noted, are the largest squirrel because apparently they're a squirrel. And uh, so in particularly the hoary marmot, uh, Marmota caligata, uh, which lives in the mountains of the American West, can actually weigh up to 30 pounds. Uh, they spend most of the winter hibernating below the snowpack. So prior to that, they bulk up to ensure that they have sufficient fat stores to make it through that long winter season. Now, normally they weigh in between 11 and 20 pounds, but they have been recorded at as much as 30 pounds. It's a big squirrel. <laughs> now, that's a pretty good uh, hibernation story, but the longest and deepest hibernation of any animal on Earth belongs to the Arctic squirrel. And so they actually spend eight months of the year hibernating. It gets so cold that their body temperature drops to 26.7 degrees Fahrenheit, which is, as you probably know, below the freezing point of water. However, they are able to maintain liquid blood, uh, most likely through supercooling, uh, which we talked about just last week. Uh, and so, yeah, that's super fascinating that they are able to do that. Uh, it's crazy that they can basically survive at like almost five degrees below uh, the freezing point. And I'm also really curious to know how they managed to do super cooling because if you listened or um, were able to tune into last week, we talked about how uh, super cooling in water, the way to affect that is to have incredibly pure water with absolutely nothing in it that can create uh, ice crystals. So nothing for around which for the um, crystals to form. And so to have blood that doesn't have anything in it that will cause ice crystals to form, it's pretty crazy to me. Um, I'm not sure how they do it. <laughs> um, so yeah. Okay, let's finish off tonight with uh, several stories about birds, and actually mostly proto-birds, uh, or bird-like dinosaurs. <laughs> now, as we know, uh, all birds are dinosaurs, um, but clearly not all dinosaurs are birds. Um, it is definitely one of those uh, logic uh, puzzles where, <laughs> um, and so again, definitely uh, if you ever want to, I, I say this often that if you ever really want to see uh, for yourself the fact that dinosaurs or that birds are dinosaurs, just, just look at a turkey. Um, I was talking about them the other day with someone and yeah, they are definitely dinosaurs. Um, so let's talk about one of the most essential questions. How did dinosaurs uh, start on their way to taking flight? And so new research suggests that the ability to master a long jump may have been the trigger to eventually evolving the ability to fly. 
So by studying living birds, Diana Chin and David Lentink, researchers at Stanford University, have formulated a hypothesis as to how this first flight may have taken wing. And so not only is this interesting for the past, but the research may also lead to new methods for robots to take flight. And so what they did was the researchers looked at Pacific parrotlets, um, which are obviously existing birds. <laughs> and what they did was these parrotlets use their legs to jump from one close branch to another. Makes sense. Um, but if, however, the branch is just a little out of reach of a hop alone, they will add what the research refer to as a proto-wing beat. And so this is described as a small flapping motion that lets the bird travel just a bit farther, um, but doesn't require as much energy as full flight. So they published in the journal Science Advances, and the researchers suggest that bird-like dinosaurs, such as Microraptor, could use such a proto-wing beat to jump 20% further than unaided, and the boost would only cost around 30% of the energy of otherwise supporting the overall body weight of the creature. Now, this could have meant an advantage over competitors who would have needed to expend more energy to move around in the environment. And especially some of these environments that they think that they lived in, um, you know, it's a forest and places like that where it's, you know, it's much easier if you can hop from branch to branch uh, than having to uh, climb around or uh, actually um, glide. And so they suggest that even for protobirds that couldn't support their weight in flight, uh, they would have still gained a bit of energy saving power from the wing stroke. And so the researchers also looked at how this information might be used for future robotics. And so what they noticed was that the parrotlets are able to change their takeoff angle in order to minimize the amount of energy they expend uh, when moving, again, through difficult environments. So the researchers developed a new flight chamber that measured the aerodynamic forces on the bird's wings, as well as equipping their perches with force sensors. Now, the force sensors are fairly standard, um, but the flight chamber had to be designed for the experiment. Floor and ceiling sensors in the tunnel allowed the researchers to measure how the bird's wings generate aerodynamic lift forces. They found that a co the combination of force, the, combina the combined forces of wing and long and leg long jumps allowed for the most efficient foraging strategy. Say that three times fast. <laughs> and so they planned to study the flights using a new 3D imaging technology that projects patterns of light onto the birds. As they fly, the patterns are distorted and caught on a high-speed camera. A computer is then able to translate this information into a 3D model. And so basically, if you have a robot that is expending energy, the less energy that that robot can expend, the better. So if you can find better ways to have that robot be able to move, that is all the better. Okay, 
So um, a newly discovered species of bird-like dinosaur has actually been found. Speaking of bird-like dinosaurs, um, this is the Kaihong Juji. Uh, and so what's amazing about this is that it is the first uh, bird-like dinosaur to show signs of having had iridescent feathers. And this is according to a study published recently in Nature Communications. Now, this would have been a small dinosaur around the size of a duck, and it would have had a bony crest on its head and would have featured long ribbon-like feathers. Based on analysis of the fossil feathers, the feathers on the head, wings, and tail would have featured iridescence. Iridescent coloration is well known to be linked to sexual selection and signaling, and we report its early evidence in dinosaurs. Kaihong Juji may have a cute nickname in English, Rainbow, uh, but it has serious scientific implications, said co-lead author Professor Julia Clark from the University of Texas at Austin. Now, the fossil, which includes a nearly complete skeleton surrounded by feather impressions, was discovered back in 2014 uh, by a farmer in China's Hebei province. Now, excitingly, the impressions preserved the shape of the melanosomes, um, which are the way in which the color is expressed. So comparing the melanosomes to living birds, the researchers were able to determine that they most closely resembled those of living hummingbirds. Aside from making Jurassic ecosystems of 161 million years ago more colorful, Kaihong Juji is interesting because it has feathers that are both ancient and modern, said co-lead author Professor Jing Zhu from the Institute of Vertebrate Paleontology and Paleoanthropology at the Chinese Academy of Sciences. The bony crest is a feature usually seen in dinosaurs from earlier eras, while its neck feathers show evidence of melanosomes that may represent the first known occurrence of iridescence similar to that found in a variety of hummingbird species living today. And so it's also really interesting because it has this interesting mix. So um, they note that there are crests associated with sexual selection previously known only in earlier dinosaurs, and yet there is also a bird mechanism of signaling or displaying appearing for the first time, Professor Clark added. And so one of the other interesting and weird things about this uh, species is that it had asymmetrical feathers, which is a feature that modern birds use to steer. However, this proto-bird, again, wouldn't have had any flight. Um, and in addition, in the Kaihong Shuji, the asymmetrical feathers are actually on the tail, whereas in modern birds, they're located on the wingtips. The tail feathers are asymmetrical, but wing feathers not. A bizarre feature feature previously unknown among dinosaurs, including birds, Professor Zhu said. This suggests that controlling flight may have been first evolved with tail feathers during some kind of aerial locomotion. Kaihong Juji stands out even among its closest relatives. He also added that while the other dinosaurs have bird-like triangular skulls and long forearm bones in comparison to birds today, this dinosaur had a long and narrow skull, and unlike many of these other dinosaurs, its short forelimbs show proportions more akin to modern birds. 
This combination of traits is unusual, Professor Clark noted. It has a rather velociraptor-looking low and long skull with its fully feathered, shaggy kind of plumage and a big fantail. It is really cool, or maybe creepy-looking, depending on your perspective. <laughs> okay, um, so we will have to save the story about turkey vultures for next time, but I do want to bring that up because it is a really interesting story, and I like vultures a lot. Um, so we will lead off with that next week, but for tonight, I do need to wrap up. So this has been Evidence-Based Radio, and please do stay tuned for Civil Politics coming up next. This show is part of the Planetside Productions Network. For more information, please visit www.planetside.pro and thank you for listening.